<laughs> and thank you for the reminder, Orly Rose. Orly Rose says, I cannot wait to see what Uberdale gets up to in Bree tonight. Uberdale. All right, we'll review that after this review, okay? We'll do our, like, full review, and then we'll talk about what on earth people might be discussing when it comes to Uberdale. <laughs> A new beloved character. Um, welcome back to Middle-Earth. We are following as young Frodo, a hobbit. Uh, hobbits being, of course, a group of people seemingly of little importance to the wide world and the various kingdoms that exist in it, except that this particular hobbit is carrying something very dangerous, a ring, a ring of power that would allow the Dark Lord Sauron from his place in Mordor to rule over the entirety of Middle-earth. Frodo's carrying this, not really knowing much about, frankly, the inner workings of it, simply knowing what Gandalf has been able to explain to him. He's trying to reconnect with Gandalf. He and uh, some of his hobbit friends, including his gardener and now friend Samwise Gamgee, uh, Mary Adoc Brandybuck, a.k.a. Mary, uh, Peregrine Took, a.k.a. Pippin, uh, these four are on the road. They have met some odd individuals already, and now they find themselves in Bree. They are essentially just sort of leaving the outer territories of the lands that they sort of, like, hear regular news about. We're out of the Shire, right? We're out of the neighborhood. Excuse me, I should say, we are out of, um, uh, oh, oh what is it called? We're out of Hobbiton. Okay, so we are out of the neighborhood. We are now at the outer edge of the Shire, which means we're essentially, like, out of the country, kind of. Like, we've reached the border of the country, which is going to be a feeling that's much more familiar to you folks from, like, the UK and Europe uh, than anybody from, say, the US or Canada, which, like, when you think of a country, it's absolutely massive. Um, they've reached the edge here, and they're in a, uh, a town called Bree. Now, it's a town, but really it's, like, one of the biggest towns in the area, in this whole, like, sort of western settled land. Um, not a lot of, uh, not a lot of folks uh, in sort of the, the Shire. Um, there are hobbits, of course, but um, not a lot of humans. Uh, you know, some of these, uh, some dwarves will occasionally pass through, but Bree, Bree is uh, settled by humans and hobbits and dwarves, uh, and there are lots of travelers, uh, lots of travelers up from the south and the east saying that there is trouble brewing. We've arrived here, and we're trying to keep this ring safe and secret. Keep it secret, keep it safe. Uh, we are, <laughs> of course, following as uh, Frodo is unfortunately uh, witnessing his friends speaking just a little bit too much in the tavern at night. Uh, and some people over here, some uh, some dark, uh, some sort of like uh, dark-purposed folk, uh, and this very strange fellow in the corner named Strider. Uh, Strider seems to want to kind of get in with the crew here, and in the last couple of chapters, we listen as Strider um, reveals himself. He also goes by the name Aragorn, and turns out he's actually a friend of Gandalf's. Uh, he is here to keep the Hobbit safe, and he's going to do so by saying to them, let's not go to the bedrooms. Let's leave those as they were. And instead, you will spend the night elsewhere, elsewhere in town, um, because people know where you're staying. That is where we find ourselves. Now, of course, there is the the epic tale of Uberdale. Uberdale is uh, sort of 
a modern day analog that I'm using to describe how wild it is that uh, we get introduced to this character and immediately it's like, oh yes, also, um, hey, there's just this person in the corner of the tavern and, uh, you know, he's he's like the equivalent of a trucker a little bit, you know, uh, generally regarded as uh, perhaps a little rougher around the edges, very nomadic lifestyle. Um, but turns out this character has like, songs written about them uh and they're a, a huge deal perhaps to the point where we don't even fully understand it yet uh so if you hear me talk about uberdale um <laughs> we're talking about aragorn if you hear me talk about the hell's angels we're talking about the the uh, black clad riders if you hear me talk about the <laughs> the taco bell attached to the gas station uh then we are talking about the prancing pony um if we're talking about the manager of the Taco Bell, we're talking about uh, Barlam and Butterbur, and I'm sure we'll be adding more terror. Oh, and if you hear me talk about throwing my cell phone <laughs> into... <laughs> if you hear me talk about throwing my cell phone... Actually, we don't even know this part yet, but yeah, if you hear me like talking about like how I have to keep my cell phone particularly safe because it's got like the nuclear launch codes on it, uh, we're talking about the ring. So that's all that. <laughs> <laughs> Orly Rose was particularly happy with the remnants of the Hells Angels gag. All right, folks, keep an eye out for Strider and uh, why he seems to be so important. What what importance does he really bear in the wider world here? Because clearly it's it's more than just being uh, a ranger who explores the, the wild lands. Keep an eye out for Uberdale and keep an eye out for black-clad riders. Chapter Eleven a knife in the dark. As they prepared for sleep in the inn at Bree, darkness lay upon Buckland. A mist strayed in the dells and along the riverbank. The house at Crick Hollow stood silent. Fatty Bulger opened the door cautiously and peered out. A feeling of fear had been growing in him all day, and he was unable to rest or go to bed. There was a brooding threat in the breathless night air. As he stared out into the gloom, a black shadow moved under the trees. The gate seemed to open of its own accord and close again without a sound. Terror seized him. He shrank back, and for a moment he stood trembling in the hall, and then he shut and locked the door. The night deepened. There came the soft sound of horses led with stealth along the lane. Outside the gate they stopped, and three black-clad figures entered, like shades of night creeping across the ground. One went to the door, one to the corner of the house on either side, and there they stood, as still as the shadows of stones while night went slowly on. The house and the quiet trees seemed to be waiting breathlessly. There was a faint stir in the leaves, and a cock crowed far away. The cold hour before dawn was passing. 
The figure by the door moved. In the dark without moon or stars, a drawn blade gleamed, as if a chill light had been unsheathed. There was a blow, soft but heavy. And the door shuddered. Let me just take that one more time. <laughs> the figure by the door moved. In the dark, without moon or stars, a drawn blade gleamed as if a chill light had been unsheathed. There was a blow, soft but heavy, and the door shuddered. Open in the name of Mordor said a thin, high, and menacing voice. At a second blow, the door yielded and fell back, with the timbers burst and the lock broken. The black-clad figures passed swiftly in. At that moment, among the trees nearby, a horn rang out. It rent the night like fire on a hilltop. Awake! Fear, fire, foes! Awake! Fatty Bulger had not been idle. As soon as he had seen the dark shapes creep from the garden, he knew that he must run for it or perish. And run he did, out the back door, through the garden and over the fields. When he reached the nearest house no more than a mile away, he collapsed on the doorstep. No! He was crying. No, not me! I haven't got it! It was some time before anyone could make out what he was babbling about. At last they got the idea that enemies were in Buckland, some strange invasion from the old forest, and they lost no more time. Fear! Fire! Foes! The Brandybucks were blowing the horn call of Buckland that had not been sounded for a hundred years, not since the white wolves came in the fell winter when the Brandywine was frozen over. <coughs> awake! Awake! Far away, answering horns were heard. <coughs> the alarm was spreading. The black-clad figures fled from the house. One of them let fall a hobbit cloak on the step as he ran. In the lane, the noise of hooves broke out, and gathering to a gallop went hammering away into the darkness. All about Crick Hollow, there was the sound of horns blowing, and voices crying, and feet running. But the black-clad riders rode like a gale to the north gate. Let the little people blow. Sauron would deal with them later. Meanwhile, they had another errand. They knew now that the house was empty and the ring had gone. They rode down the guards at the gate and vanished from the Shire. In the early night, Frodo woke from a deep sleep, suddenly, as if some sound or presence had disturbed him. He saw that Strider was sitting alert in his chair. His eyes gleamed in the light of the fire, which had been tended and was burning brightly, but he made no sign or movement. Frodo soon went to sleep again. 
but his dreams were again troubled with the sound of wind and of galloping hooves. The wind seemed to be curling round the house and shaking it, and far off he heard a horn blowing wildly. He opened his eyes and heard a cock crowing lustily in the inn-yard. Strider had drawn the curtains and pushed back the shutters with a clang. The first gray light of day was in the room, and a cold air was coming in through the open window. As soon as Strider had roused them all, he led the way to their bedrooms. When they saw them, they were glad that they had taken his advice. The windows had been forced open and were swinging. The curtains were flapping. The beds were tossed about and the bolsters slashed and flung upon the floor. The brown mat was torn to pieces. Strider immediately went to fetch the landlord. Poor Mr. Butterbur looked sleepy and frightened. He had hardly closed his eyes all night, so he said, but he had never heard a sound. Never has there been such a thing happening in my time, he cried, raising his hands in horror. Guests unable to sleep in their beds, and good bolsters ruined and all. What are we coming to? Dark times, said Strider. But for the present you may be left in peace. When you have got rid of us, we will leave at once. Never mind about breakfast. A drink and a bite standing will have to do. We shall be packed in a few minutes. Mr. Butterbur hurried off to see that their ponies were got ready, and to fetch them a bite. But very soon he came back in dismay. The ponies had vanished. The stable doors had all been opened in the night, and they were gone. Not only Mary's ponies, but every other horse and beast in the place. Frodo was crushed by the news. How could they hope to reach Rivendell on foot, pursued by mounted enemies? They might as well have set out for the moon. Strider sat silent for a while, looking at the hobbits as if he were weighing up their strength and courage. Ponies would not help us to escape, horsemen, he said at last, thoughtfully, as if he guessed what Frodo had in mind. We should not go much slower on foot, not on the roads that I mean to take. I was going to walk in any case. It is the food and stores that trouble me. We cannot count on getting anything to eat between here and Rivendell except what we take with us, and we ought to take plenty to spare, for we might be delayed or forced to go roundabout far out of the direct way. How much are you prepared to carry on your backs? As much as we must, said Pippin with a sinking heart, but trying to show that he was tougher than he looked, or felt. I can carry enough for two, said Sam defiantly. "'Can't anything be done, Mr. Butterbur?' asked Frodo. "'Can't we get a couple of ponies in the village, or even just one for the baggage? "'I don't suppose we could hire them, but we might be able to buy them,' he added, doubtfully, wondering if he could afford it. "'I doubt it,' said the landlord unhappily. "'The one or two riding ponies that they were in Bree were stabled in my yard, and they're gone!' As for the other animals, horses or ponies, for draft or whatnot, there were very few of them in Bree, and they won't be for sale. But I, I will see what I can do. I'll rout out Bob and send him round soon as may be. Yes, said Strider reluctantly. You had better do that. I'm afraid we shall have to try and get one pony at least. But so ends all hope of starting early and slipping away quietly. Might as well have blown a horn to announce our departure. That was part of their plan, no doubt. Well, there's one crumb of comfort, said Mary. 
And more than a crumb, I hope. We can have breakfast while we wait. And sit down to it. Let's get a hold of Nob. In the end, there was more than three hours' delay. Bob came back with the report that no horse or pony was to be got for love or money in the neighborhood. Except one. Bill Fernie had one he might possibly sell. A poor old half-starved creature it is, said Bob. But you won't part with it for less than thrice it's worth, seeing as how you're placed. Not if I knows Bill Fernie. Bill Fernie, asked Frodo, isn't there some trick? Wouldn't the beast boat back to him with all of our stuff, or help him in tracking us or something? I wonder, said Strider, but I cannot imagine any animal running home to him once it had got away. I fancy this is only an afterthought. Some way of increasing his profits from the affair. The chief danger is that the poor beast is probably at death's door, but there does not seem to be any choice. What does he want for it? Bill Fernie's price was twelve silver pennies, and that was indeed at least three times the pony's value in those parts. It proved to be a bony, underfed, and dispirited animal, but it did not look to be dying just yet. Mr. Butterbeer paid for it himself and offered Mary another eighteen pence as some compensation for the lost animals. He was an honest man, and well off as things were reckoned in Bree, but thirty silver pennies was a sore blow to him and being cheated by Bill Fernie made it harder to bear. As a matter of fact, he came out on the right side in the end. It turned out later that only one horse had actually been stolen. The others had been driven off or had bolted in terror and were found wandering in different corners of the Breeland. Mary's ponies had escaped altogether, and eventually, having a good deal of sense, they made their way to the downs in search of Fatty Lumpkin. So they came under the care of Tom Bombadil for a while and were well off. But when news of the events at Bree came to Tom's ears, he sent them to Mr. Butterbur, who thus got five good beasts at a very fair price. They had to work harder in Bree, but Bob treated them well, so on the whole they were lucky. They missed a dark and dangerous journey. But they never came to Rivendell. However, in the meanwhile, for all Mr. Butterbur knew, his money was gone for good or for bad, and he had other troubles. There was a great commotion as soon as the remaining guests were astir and heard the news of the raid on the inn. The southern travelers had lost several horses and blamed the innkeeper loudly until it came known that one of their own number had also disappeared in the night, none other than Bill Fernie's squint-eyed companion. Suspicion fell on him at once. "'If you pick up with an horse thief and you bring him into my house,' said Butterbur angrily, "'then you ought to pay for all the damage yourselves and not come shouting at me. "'Go and ask Fernie where your handsome friend is.' "'But it appeared that he was nobody's friend, "'and nobody could recollect when he had joined their party. "'After their breakfast,' The hobbits had to repack and get together further supplies for the longer journey that they were now expecting. It was close on ten o'clock before they at last got off. By that time, the whole of Bree was buzzing with excitement. Frodo's vanishing trick, the appearance of the black horsemen, the robbing of the stables, and not least the news that Strider the ranger had joined the mysterious hobbits, made such a tale as would last for many uneventful years. Most of the inhabitants of Bree and Staddle, and many even from Combe and Archet, were gathered in the road to see the travelers depart. The other guests at the inn were at the doors or hanging out of the windows. Strider had changed his mind. 
and had decided to leave Bree by the main road. Any attempt to set off across country at once would only make matters worse. Half the inhabitants would follow them to see what they were up to and to prevent them from trespassing. They said farewell to Bob and Nob and took leave of Mr. Butterbur with many thanks. I hope we shall meet again some day, when things are merry once more, said Frodo. I should like nothing better than to stay in your place in peace for a while. They stamped off anxious and downhearted, under the eyes of the crowd. Not all the faces were friendly, nor all the words that were shouted, but Strider seemed to be held in awe by most of the Brelanders, and those that he stared at shut their mouths and drew away. He walked in front with Frodo. Next came Merry and Pippin, and last came Sam leading the pony, which was laden with as much of their baggage as they had the heart to give it, but already it looked less dejected, as if it approved of the change in its fortunes. Sam was chewing on an apple, thoughtfully. He had a pocket full of them, a parting present from Nob and Bob. "'Apples for walking, and a pipe for sitting,' he said. "'But I reckon I'll miss them both before long.' The hobbits took no notice of the inquisitive heads that peeped out of doors or popped over walls and fences as they passed. But as they drew nearer to the gate, Frodo saw a dark, ill-kept house behind a thick hedge, the last house in the village. In one of the windows he caught a glimpse of the sallow face with sly, slanting eyes, but it vanished at once. So that's where that southerner's hiding, he thought. Oh, wait, no, this is Frodo. So that's where that southerner is hiding, he thought. He looks more than half like a goblin. Over the hedge, another man was staring boldly. He had heavy black brows and dark, scornful eyes. His large mouth curled in a sneer. He was smoking a short black pipe. As they approached, he took it out of his mouth and spat. "'Morning, Longshanks,' he said. "'Off early. Found some friends at last.' Strider nodded, but did not answer. "'Good morning, my little friends,' he said to the others. "'I suppose you know who you've taken up with. "'That stick-it-not strider, that is.' Though I've heard other names not so pretty. Watch out tonight. And you, Sammy, don't go ill-treating that poor pony. Bah! He spat again. Sam turned quickly. And you, Bill Fernie, he said. Put your ugly face out of sight or it's going to get hurt. With a sudden flick, quick as lightning, an apple left his hand and hit Bill square in the nose. He ducked too late and curses came from behind the hedge. Waste of a good apple said Sam regretfully, and strode on. At last, they left the village behind. The escort of children and stragglers that followed them got tired and turned back at the south gate. Passing through, they kept on along the road for some miles. It bent to the left, curving back into its eastward line, and it rounded the feet of Bree Hill, and then began its run swiftly downward into wooded country. To their left, they could see some of the houses and hobbit holes of Staddle, on the gentler southeastern slopes of the hill. Down in a deep hollow away north of the road, there were wisps of rising smoke that showed where Combe lay. Archit was hidden in the trees beyond. After the road had run down some way, and had left Bree Hill standing tall and brown behind, they came in a narrow track that led off toward the north. "'This is where we leave the open and take to cover,' said Strider. "'Not a shortcut, I hope,' said Pippin. Our last shortcut through the woods nearly ended in a disaster. 
Ah, but you had not got me with you then, <laughs> laughed Strider. My cuts, short or long, don't go wrong. He took a look up and down the road. No one was in sight, but he led the way down toward the wooded valley. His plan, as far as they could understand it, without knowing the country, was to go toward Archit at first, but to bear right and pass it on the east, and then to steer as straight as they could over the wildlands to Weathertop Hill. In that way, they would, if all went well, cut off a great loop of the road, which further on bent southward to avoid the Midgewater marshes. But of course, they would have to pass through the marshes themselves, and Strider's description of them was not encouraging. However, in the meanwhile, walking was not unpleasant. Indeed, if it had not been for the disturbing events of the night before, they would have enjoyed this part of the journey better than any up to that time. The sun was shining, clear but not too hot. The woods in the valley were still leafy and full of color and seemed peaceful and wholesome. Strider guided them confidently among the many crossing paths, although left to themselves they would have soon been at a loss. He was taking a wandering course with many turns and doublings to put off any pursuit. "'Bill Fernie would have watched where we left the road for certain,' he said. "'Though I don't think he will follow us himself. He knows the land round here well enough, but he knows he's not a match for me in a wood. It's what he may tell others that I'm afraid of. I don't suppose they're far away. If they think we've made for Archit... All the better. Whether because of Strider's skill or for some other reason, they saw no sign and heard no sound of any other living thing all that day. Neither two-footed except birds, nor four-footed except one fox and a few squirrels. The next day they began to steer a steady course eastward, and still all was quiet and peaceful. On the third day, out from Bree, they came out of the Chetwood, the land had been falling steadily ever since they turned away from the road, and now they entered a wide, flat expanse of country, much more difficult to manage. They were far beyond the borders of the Breeland, out in the pathless wilderness, and drawing near to the Midgewater marshes. The ground now became damp, and in places boggy, and here and there they came upon pools and wide stretches of reeds and rushes filled with the warbling of little hidden birds. They had to pick their way carefully to keep both dry-footed and on their proper course. At first they made fair progress, but as they went on, their passage became slower and more dangerous. The marshes were bewildering and treacherous, and there was no permanent trail even for rangers to find through their shifting quagmires. The flies began to torment them, and the air was full of clouds of tiny midges that crept up their sleeves and breeches and into their hair. I'm being eaten alive, cried Pippin. Midge water? Are there more midges than water? What do they live on when they can't get hobbits? asked Sam, scratching at his neck. They spent a miserable day in this lonely and unpleasant country. Their camping place was damp, cold, and uncomfortable, and the biting insects would not let them sleep. There were also abominable creatures hunting in the reeds and tussocks that, from the sound, were evil relatives of the cricket. There were thousands of them, and they squeaked all round unceasingly all night until the hobbits were nearly frantic. The next day, the fourth, was little better, and the night almost as comfortless. Although the Neekerbreakers, as Sam called them, had been left behind, the midges still pursued them. As Frodo lay, tired but unable to close his eyes, 
It seemed to him that far away there came a light in the eastern sky. It flashed and faded many times. It was not the dawn, for that was still some hours off. What is that light? he said to Strider, who had risen and was standing, gazing ahead into the night. I do not know, Strider answered. It is too distant to make out. It is like lightning that leaps up from the hilltops. Frodo lay down again, but for a long while he could still see the white flashes, and against them the tall, dark figure of Strider, standing silent and watchful. At last he passed into an uneasy sleep. They had not gone far on the fifth day when they left at last the straggling pools and reed beds of the marshes behind them. The land before them began steadily to rise again. Away in the distance eastward they could now see a line of hills. The highest of them was at the right of a line and a little separated them from the others. They had a conical top, slightly flattened at the summit. That is Weathertop, said Strider. The old road, which we've left far away on our right, runs to the south of it and passes not far from its foot. We might be able to reach it by noon tomorrow if we go straight for it. I suppose we'd better do so. What do you mean? asked Frodo. I mean, when we do get there, it is not certain what we shall find. It's close to the road. But surely we were hoping to find Gandalf there. Yes, but the hope is faint. If he comes this way at all, he may not pass through Bury and so may not know where we are going, and anyway, unless by luck we arrive almost together, we shall miss one another. It will not be safe for him or for us to wait there long. If the riders fail to find us in the wilderness, they are likely to make for Weathertop themselves. It commands a wide view all round. Indeed, there are many birds and beasts in this country that could see us, as we stand here from that hilltop. Not all the birds are to be trusted, and there are other spies more evil than they are. The hobbits looked anxiously at the distant hills. Sam looked up into the pale sky, fearing to see hawks or eagles hovering over them with bright, unfriendly eyes. "'You do make me feel uncomfortable and lonesome, Strider,' he said. "'What do you advise us to do?' asked Frodo. "'I think,' answered Strider slowly, as if he were not quite sure. "'I think the best thing is to go straight eastward from here as we can, to make for the line of hills.' not for Weathertop. There we can strike a path that I know that runs at their feet. It will bring us to Weathertop from the north, and less openly. We shall see what we shall see. All that day they plodded along, until the cold and early evening came down. The land became drier and more barren, but mists and vapors lay behind them upon the marshes. A few melancholy birds were piping and wailing until the round red sun sank slowly into the western shadows. Then an empty silence fell. The hobbits thought of the soft light of sunset glancing through the cheerful windows of Bag End far away. At the day's end they came to a stream that wandered down from the hills to lose itself in the stagnant marshland, and they went up along its banks while the light lasted. It was already night when at last they halted and made their camp under some stunted alder trees by the shores of the stream. 
Ahead there loomed now against the dusky sky the bleak and treeless backs of the hills. That night they set a watch, and Strider, it seems, did not sleep at all. The moon was waxing, and in the early night hours a cold gray light lay upon the land. Next morning they set out again, soon after sunrise. There was a frost in the air, and the sky was a pale, clear blue. The hobbits felt refreshed, as if they had had a night of unbroken sleep. Already they were getting used to much walking on short commons, shorter at any rate than what they had in the Shire, and what they would have considered barely enough to keep them on their legs. Pippin declared that Frodo was looking twice the hobbit that he had been. "'Very odd,' said Frodo, tightening his belt, "'considering that there is actually a good deal less of me. "'I hope the thinning process will not go on indefinitely, or I shall become a wraith.' "'Do not speak of such things,' said Strider quickly, and with surprising earnestness. The hills grew nearer. They made an undulating ridge, often rising almost to a thousand feet, and here and there falling again in low clefts or passes leading into the eastern land beyond. Along the crest of the ridge, the hobbits could see what looked like the remnants of green-grown walls and dikes, and in the clefts there still stood the ruins of old works of stone. By night they had reached the feet of the westward slopes, and there they camped. It was the night of the 5th of October, and they were six days out from Bree. In the morning they found, for the first time that they had left the Chetwood, a track plain to see. They turned right and followed it southward. It ran cunningly, taking a line that seemed chosen so as to keep as hidden as possible from view, both of the hilltops above and the flats to the west. They dived into dells and hugged steep banks, and where it passed over flatter and more open ground on either side of it, there were lines of large boulders and hewn stones that screened the travelers almost like a hedge. "'I wonder who made this path, and what for?' said Mary, as they walked along one of those avenues where the stones were usually largest and closely set. "'I'm not sure that I like it. It's got a, got a, a rather barrow-whitish look. Is there any barrow on Weathertop?' "'No, there are no barrows on Weathertop, nor any of these hills,' answered Strider. "'The men of the West did not live here, although in their latter days they defended the hills for a while against the evil that came out of Angmar. This path was made to serve the forts along the walls. But long before, in the first days of the North Kingdom, they built a great watchtower on Weathertop. Amon Sul, they called it. It was burnt and broken, and nothing remains of it now but a tumbled ring, like a rough crown on the old hill's head. And yet, once it was tall and fair. It is told that Elendil stood there watching for the coming of Gilgalad out of the west in the last days of the Alliance. The hobbits gazed at Strider. It seemed he was learned in old lore as well as in the ways of the wild. Who was Gilgalad? asked Mary, but Strider did not answer and seemed to be lost in thought. Suddenly a low voice murmured, Gilgalad was an elven king, of him the harpers sadly sing, the last whose realm was fair and free between the mountains and the sea. His sword was long, his lance was keen, his uh, shining helm afar was seen, 
The countless stars of Evans Field were mirrored in his silver shield. But long ago he rode away, and where he dwelleth none can say, for in the darkness fell his star, in Mordor, where the shadows are. The others turned in amazement, for the voice was Sam's. Don't stop, said Mary. Well, that's all I know, stammered Sam, blushing. I learned it from Mr. Bilbo when I was a lad. He used to tell me tales like that, knowing I was always one for hearing about elves. It was Mr. Bilbo taught me my letters. He were a mighty book learner, was dear old Mr. Bilbo. And he wrote poetry. He wrote what I just said. He did not make it up said Strider. It is part of the lay that is called the Fall of Gilgalad, which is in an ancient tongue. Bilbo must have translated it. I never knew that. Oh, there was a lot more, said Sam. All about Mordor. I didn't learn that part. Gave me the shivers. I never thought I should be going this way myself. Going to Mordor? cried Pippin. I hope it won't come to that. Do not speak that name so loudly, said Strider. Now, this is not actually a break in between chapters, but today is going to be one long chapter that's literally twice the length of the chapters that we've been reading previously. And as such, I just want to take a quick opportunity to jump in here, remind you all, hey, my name is Sam, this is Sidecar Stories. If you want to find out more, linktree slash Sidecar Stories. L-I-N-K-T-R dot E-E slash Sidecar Stories. So there's that out of the way. But I also wanted to give us a chance to talk about what we're reading here. Um, as per usual, y'all are watching me uh, stumble, just as the hobbits might, uh, with their feet. Uh, you listen to me stumble with my tongue over the many directions that we are given here. All right, we're once again in the countryside and traveling, which means when it comes to uh, when it comes to our friend J.R.R. Tolkien. It means lots of descriptions, um, winding north, southeast, you know, uh, all the different directions that we are heading, all the different ways that the paths cut, uh, all of these different landmarks in relation to one another. Now, this is the sort of thing that I would uh, probably sooner have as a map than anything else. Perhaps that's just my deep fried uh, uh, millennial attention span. But the the thing I think that, that we can all gather from this is just a, a different style of addressing directions, right? Normally, this probably would be a map or some imagery or, honestly, at most, um, more like a list of landmarks than saying, okay, here's this landmark and then we headed in this direction. You know, we headed headed east from here and then northeast and then cut around this landmark, etc. It probably would have been... Yeah, we sort of headed roughly in the direction of Archit and then headed straight through uh, the what is it, Midgewater Swamps, I believe it was called. And so now we find ourselves uh, uh, really well described as to where we are going. Uh, for those of you who are familiar... Ooh, do I have it? Do I have it? Do I have it? I've got it! I've got it! Um, I don't. <laughs> I was hoping that I would. I was hoping that I would have a, um, uh, a, a map of... Uh, Middle Earth already booted up, but I don't have it at the moment. Um, we're going to take uh, probably another like 60 seconds of chatter break here. Um, but basically, I just wanted to draw your attention to all of this description. Um, and uh, I want to ask 
especially as we move on uh, into the the edited version of this, I would love to know from you all how does it affect your understanding of the of the book and the understanding of the journey that these characters are taking? Not in the most literal sort of surface sense. Of course, you understand it in a much more sort of literary way, but how does it affect your feeling about this travel? Does it make you feel more exhausted or fatigued? Does it make you feel more tied into the world? Uh, do all of these descriptions of having, you know, passed through little gullies with uh, what I believe... Um, I don't know if I'm going to be able to find it specifically, but uh, essentially old works of stone left in ruins. How does it make you feel about this story that we're reading? How does it change the way that you are connecting with this book? There's our Jedi question. Let us launch back in. <laughs> It was already midday when they drew near to the southern end of the path and saw before them, in the pale, clear light of the October sun, a gray-green bank, leading up like a bridge to the northward slope of the hill. They decided to make for the top at once, while the daylight was broad. Concealment was no longer possible, and they could only hope that no enemy or spy was observing them. Nothing was to be seen moving on the hill. If Gandalf was anywhere about, there was no sign of him. On the western flank of Weathertop, they found a sheltered hollow, at the bottom of which was a bowl-shaped dell with grassy sides. There they left Sam and Pippin with the pony and their packs and luggage. The other three went on. After half an hour's plodding climb, Strider reached the crown of the hill. Frodo and Merry followed, tired and breathless. The last slope had been steep and rocky. On the top they found, as Strider had said, a wide ring of ancient stonework now crumbling or covered with age-long grass, but in the center a cairn of broken stones had been piled. They were blackened as if with fire. About them the turf was burned to the roots, and all within the ring of grass was scorched and shriveled, as if flames had swept the hilltop, but there was no sign of any living thing. Standing upon the rim of the ruined circle, they saw all round below them a wide prospect, for most parts of the lands empty and featureless, except for the patches of woodland away to the south beyond which they caught here and there the glint of distant water. Beneath them, in this southern side, ran like a ribbon the old road, coming out of the west and winding up and down, until it faded behind a ridge of dark land to the east. Nothing was moving on it. Following its line eastward with their eyes, they saw the mountains. The nearer foothills were brown and somber. Behind them stood taller shapes of gray, and behind those again were white high peaks glimmering among the clouds. "'Well, here we are,' said Mary, "'and very cheerless and uninviting it looks. "'There's no water, no shelter, and no sign of Gandalf. "'I don't blame him for not waiting, though, if he ever did come here.' "'I wonder,' said Strider, looking around thoughtfully, even if he was a day or two behind us at Bree, he could have arrived here first. He can ride very swiftly when need presses. 
Suddenly he stooped and looked at the stone on top of the cairn. It was flatter than the others, and whiter, as if it had escaped the fire. He picked it up and examined it, turning it in his fingers. This has been handled recently, he said. What do you think of those marks? On the flat underside, Frodo saw some scratches. And here I shall describe the scratches. Um, there are, on the starting on the left-hand side, a single vertical scratch. Um, next to that, to the right, uh, what looks like maybe a quotation mark. Next to that, a dot in the very middle. And following that, three additional vertical lines. There seems to be a stroke, a dot, and three more strokes, he said. The stroke on the left might be a G rune with thin branches, said Strider. It might be a sign left by Gandalf, though one cannot be sure. The scratches are fine, and they certainly look fresh. But the marks might mean something quite different, and have got nothing to do with us. Rangers use runes, and they come here sometimes. What could they mean? Even if Gandalf made them, asked Mary. I should say, answered Strider, that they stood for G3 and were a sign that Gandalf was here on October the 3rd. That is three days ago now. They would also show that he was in a hurry and danger was at hand, so that he had no time or did not dare to write anything longer or plainer. If that is so, we must be wary. I wish we could feel sure that he made the marks, whatever they may mean, said Frodo. It will be a great deal of comfort to know that he were on the way, in front of us or behind us. Perhaps, said Strider. For myself, I believe that he was here, and was in danger. There may have been scorching flames here, and now the light that we saw three nights ago in the eastern sky comes back to my mind. I guess that he was attacked on this hilltop, but with what result I cannot tell. He's here no longer, and we must now look out for ourselves and make our own way to Rivendell as best we can. How far is Rivendell? asked Mary, gazing round wearily. The world looked wild and wide from Weathertop. I don't know if the road has ever been measured in miles beyond the Forsaken Inn, a day's journey east of Bree, answered Strider. Some say it's so far, and others say otherwise. It is a strange road, and folk are glad to reach their journey's end, whether the time is long or short. But I know how long it will take me on my own feet, with fair weather and no ill fortune, twelve days from here to the ford of Bruinen, where the road crosses the loud water that runs out of Rivendell. We have at least a fortnight's journey before us, for I do not think that we shall be able to use the road. A fortnight, said Frodo. A lot may happen in that time. It may, said Strider. They stood for a while, silent upon the hilltop, near its southward edge. In that lonely place, Frodo, for the first time, fully realized his homelessness and danger. He wished bitterly that his fortune had left him in the quiet and beloved Shire. He stared down that hateful road leading back westward to his home. Suddenly he was aware that two black specks were moving slowly along it, going westward. And looking again, he saw that three others were creeping eastward to meet them. He gave a cry and clutched Strider's arm. Look! 
he said, pointing downward. At once, Strider flung himself on the ground behind the ruined circle, pulling Frodo down beside him. Merry threw himself alongside. What is it? he whispered. I do not know, but I fear the worst, answered Strider. Slowly, they crawled up to the edge of the ring again and peered through a cleft between two jagged stones. The light was no longer bright, for the clear morning had faded and clouds creeped out of the east and had now overtaken the sun as it began to go down. They could all see the black specks, but neither Frodo nor Merry could make out their shapes for certain, yet something told them that there, far below, were black riders assembling on the road beyond the foot of the hill. Yes, said Strider, whose keener sight left him no doubt. The enemy is here. Hastily they crept away and slipped down the north side of the hill to find their companions. Sam and Peregrine had not been idle. They had explored the small dell and the surrounding slopes. Not far away they found a clear spring of water in the hillside, and near it, footprints, not more than a day or two old. In the dell itself they found recent traces of a fire, and other signs of a hasty camp. There were some fallen rocks on the edge of the dell nearest to the hill. Behind them Sam came upon a small store of firewood neatly stacked. "'We wonder if old Gandalf has been here,' he said to Pippin. "'Whoever has put this stuff here meant to come back for it, it seems.' Strider was greatly interested in these discoveries. "'I wish I had waited and explored the ground here myself,' he said, hurrying off to the spring to examine the footprints. "'It's just as I feared,' he said when he came back. "'Sam and Pippin have trampled the soft ground and the marks are spoiled or confused. Rangers have been here lately. It is they who left the firewood behind. But there are also several newer tracks that were not made by rangers.' At least one set was made only a day or two ago by heavy boots. At least one. I cannot now be certain, but I think that there were many booted feet. He paused and stood in anxious thought. Each of the hobbits saw in his mind a vision of the cloaked and booted riders. If the horsemen had already found the dell, the sooner Strider led them somewhere else, the better. Sam viewed the hollow with great dislike now that he had heard the news of their enemies upon the road only a few miles away. "'Adn't we better clear out quick, Mr. Strider?' he asked impatiently. "'It's getting late, and I don't like this hole. Makes my heart sink somehow.' "'Yes, we must certainly decide what to do at once,' answered Strider, looking up and considering the time and the weather. "'Well, Sam,' he said at last, "'I do not like this place either.' but I cannot think of anywhere better that we could reach before nightfall. At least we are out of sight for the moment, and if we move we should be much more likely to be seen by spies. All that we could do would be to go right out of our way back north on this side of the line of hills where the land is all much the same as it is here. The road is watched, but we should have to cross it if we try to take cover in the thickets away to the south. On the north side of the road, beyond the hills, the country is bare and flat for miles. Uh, can the riders see? asked Mary. I mean, they seem usually to use their noses rather than their eyes, smelling at us for something, uh, if, if smelling is the right word, at least in the daylight. But you made us lie down flat when you saw them down below, and now you talk of being seen if we move. 
I was too careless on the hilltop, answered Strider. I was very anxious to find some sign of Gandalf, but it was a mistake for three of us to go up and stand there for so long. But the black horses can see, and the riders can use men and other creatures as spies, as we found at Bree. They themselves do not see the world of light as we do, but our shapes cast shadows in their minds, which only the noon sun destroys, and in the dark they perceive many signs and forms that are hidden from us. Then they are to be their most feared. And at all times they smell the blood of living things, desiring and hating it. Senses, too. There are other senses than sight or smell. We can feel their presence. It troubled our hearts as soon as we came here and before we saw them. They feel ours more keenly. Also, he added, and his voice sank to a whisper, the ring draws them. Is there no escape, then? said Frodo, looking around wildly. If I move, I shall be seen and hunted. If I stay, I shall draw them to me. Strider laid his hand upon his shoulder. There is still hope, he said. You are not alone. Let us take this wood that is set ready for the fire as a sign. There is little shelter or defense here, but fire shall serve for both. Sauron can put fire to his evil uses, as he can all things, but these riders do not love it, and fear those who wield it. Fire is our friend in the wilderness. Uh, maybe, muttered Sam. It's also as good a way of saying, here we are, as I can think of, bar shouting. Down in the lowest and most sheltered corner of the dell they lit a fire and prepared a meal. The shades of evening began to fall, and it grew cold. They were suddenly aware of great hunger, for they had not eaten anything since breakfast, but they dared not make more than a frugal supper. The lands ahead were empty of all save birds and beasts, unfriendly places deserted by all races of the world. Rangers passed by it at times beyond the hills, but there were few, and they did not stay. Other wanderers were rare, and of evil sort. Trolls might stray down at times of the northern valleys of the Misty Mountains. Only on the road would travelers be found, most often dwarves hurrying along on business of their own and with no help and few words to spare for strangers. "'I don't see how our food can be made to last,' said Frodo. "'We've been careful enough in the last few days, and this supper is no feast, but we've used more than we ought, if we have two weeks still to go, and perhaps more.' "'There is food in the wild,' said Strider. "'Berry, root, and herb. "'And I've got some skill as a hunter at need. "'You need not be afraid of starving before winter comes. "'But gathering and catching food is long and weary work, "'and we need haste, so tighten your belts "'and think with hope of the tables of Elrond's house.' "'The cold increased as darkness came on.' Peering out from the edge of the dell, they could now see nothing but a gray land now vanishing quickly into shadow. The sky above had cleared again and was slowly filling with twinkling stars. Frodo and his companions huddled round the fire, wrapped in every garment and blanket they possessed, but Strider was content with a single cloak and sat a little apart, drawing thoughtfully at his pipe. 
As night fell and the light of the fire began to shine out brightly, he began to tell them tales to keep their minds from fear. He knew many legends and stories of long ago, of elves and men and the good and evil deeds of the elder days. They wondered how old he was and where he had learned all of this lore. "'Tell us about Gilgalad,' said Mary suddenly, when he paused at the end of a story of the elf kingdoms. "'Do you know any more of that old lay that they spoke of?' "'I do indeed,' answered Strider. "'So also does Frodo, for it concerns us closely.' Mary and Pippin looked at Frodo, who was staring into the fire. Uh, "'I only know the little that Gandalf has told me,' said Frodo slowly. "'Gilgalad was the last of the great elf kings of Middle-earth. "'Gilgalad is starlight in their tongue. "'With Elendil, the elf friend, he went to the land of—' "'No!' said Strider, interrupting. I did not think that tale should be told now with the servants of the enemy at hand. If we win through to the house of Elrond, you may hear it there, told in full. Well, then tell us some other tale of the old days, begged Sam. A tale about the elves, before the fading time. I would dearly like to hear more about the elves. The dark seems to press in so close around. I'll tell you. The tale of Tinuviel, said Strider. In brief, for it is a long tale of which the end is not known, and there are none now except Elrond that remember it aright as it was told of old. It is a fair tale, though it is sad. As are all the tales of Middle-earth, and yet it may lift up your hearts. He was silent for some time, and then began not to speak, but to softly chant. The leaves were long, the grass was green, the hemlock umbles tall and fair, and in the glade a light was seen of stars in shadow shimmering. Tinuviel was dancing there, to music of a pipe unseen, and light of stars was in her hair and in her raiment glimmering. Their baron came from mountains cold, and lost he wandered under leaves, and where the elven river rolled he walked alone and sorrowing. He peered between the hemlock leaves, and saw in wonder flowers of gold upon her mantle and her sleeves, and her hair like shadow following. Enchantment healed his weary feet, that over hills were doomed to roam, and forth he hastened, strong and fleet, and gasped at moonbeams glistening. Through woven woods and elven homes she lightly fled on dancing feet, and left him lonely still to roam, in the silent forest listening. He heard there oft the flying sound of feet as light as linden leaves, or music welling underground in hidden hollows quavering. Now withered lay the hemlock sheaves, and one by one with sighing sound, whispering fell the beechen leaves in the wintry woodland wavering. He sought her ever, 
wandering far, where leaves of years were thickly strewn, by light of moon and ray of star, in frosty heavens shivering. A mantle glinted in the moon, as on hilltop high and far. She danced, and at her feet was strewn a mist of silver quivering. When winter passed, she came again, and her song released the sudden spring, like rising lark and falling rain and melting water bubbling. He saw the elven flowers spring about her feet and healed again. He longed by her to sing and dance upon the grass untroubling. Again she fled, but swift he came. Tinuviel! Tinuviel! He called her by her elvish name, and there she halted, listening. One moment stood she, and a spell, his voice laid on her. Baron came, and doom fell on Tinuviel, that in his arms lay glistening. As Baron looked into her eyes, within the shadows of her hair, the trembling starlight of the skies he saw there mirrored, shimmering. Tenuviel, the elven fair, immortal maiden elven-wise, about him cast her shadowy hair and arms like silver glimmering. Long was the way that fate them bore, O'er stony mountains cold and grey. Through halls of iron and darkling door And woods of nightshade, more or less, The sundering seas between them lay, And yet at last they met once more, And long ago they passed away. In the forest, sinking sorrowless, Strider sighed and paused before he spoke again. That is a song, he said, in the mode that is called Antenath among the elves, but is hard to render in our common speech, and this is but a rough echo of it. It tells of the meeting of Beren, son of Barahir, and Luthien Tinuviel. Beren was a mortal man, but Luthien was the daughter of Thingol, a king of elves upon Middle-earth when the world was young. And she was the fairest maiden that has ever been among all the children of this world. As the stars above the mists of the northern lands was her loveliness, and in her face was a shining star. In those days the great enemy, of whom Sauron of Mordor was but a servant, dwelt in Angband in the north, and the elves of the west, coming back to Middle-earth, made war upon him to regain the Silmarils which he had stolen, and the fathers of men aided the elves. But the enemy was victorious, and Barahir was slain, and Beren, escaping through the great peril, 
came over the mountains of terror into the hidden kingdom of Thingol, in the forests of Neldoreth. There he beheld Luthien singing and dancing in a glade beside the enchanted river Escalduin. And he named her Tinuviel, that is Nightingale in the language of old. Many sorrows befell them afterward, and they were parted long. Denuviel rescued Beren from the dungeons of Sauron, and together they passed through great dangers, and cast down even the great enemy from his throne, and took from his iron crown one of the three Silmarils, brightest of all jewels, to be the bride price of Luthien to Thingol her father. Yet, at the last, Beren was slain by the wolf that came from the gates of Ankband, and he died in the arms of Tinuviel. But she chose mortality, and to die from the world, so she might follow him. And it is sung that they met again beyond the sundering seas, and after a brief time walking alive once more in the green woods together, they passed long ago beyond the confines of this world. So it is that Luthien Tinuviel alone of the elf kindred has died indeed and left the world, and they have lost her whom they most loved. But from her the lineage of the elf lords of old descended among men. There live still those of whom Luthien was the foremother, and it is said that her line shall never fail. Elrond of Rivendell is of that kin, for of Beren and Luthien was born Dior Thingol's heir, and of him Elwing, the white, whom Earendil wedded, he that sailed his ship out of the mist of the world into the seas of heaven, with the Silmarils upon his brow. And of Earendil came the kings of Numenor, that is Westerners. As Strider was speaking, they watched his strange, eager face, dimly lit in the red glow of the wood fire. His eyes shone, and his voice was rich and deep. Above him was a black, starry sky. Suddenly, a pale light appeared over the crown of Weathertop behind him. The waxing moon was climbing slowly above that hill that overshadowed them, and the stars above the hilltop faded. The story ended. The hobbits moved and stretched. Look, said Mary, the moon is rising. Must be getting late. The others looked up. Even as they did so, they saw on the top of the hill something small and dark against the glimmer of the moonrise. It was perhaps only a large stone or jutting rock shown up by the pale night. Sam and Mary got up and walked away from the fire. Frodo and Pippin remained seated in silence. Strider was watching the moonlight on the hill intently. All seemed quiet and still, but Frodo felt a cold dread creeping over his heart now that Strider was no longer speaking. He huddled closer to the fire. At that moment, Sam came running back from the edge of the dell. I don't know what it is, he said, but I suddenly felt afraid. I doesn't go outside of this dell for any money. I felt... Something was creeping up the slope. Did you see anything? asked Frodo, springing to his feet. No, sir, I saw nothing, but I didn't stop to look. 
I saw something, said Mary. Or I thought I did. Away westward, where the moonlight was falling on the flats beyond the shadow of the hilltops, I thought there were two or three black shapes. They seemed to be moving this way. Keep close to the fire with your faces outward, cried Strider. Get some of the longer sticks ready in your hands. For a breathless time they sat there, silent and alert, with their backs turned to the wood fire, each gazing into the shadows that encircled them. Nothing happened. There was no sound or movement in the night. Frodo stirred, feeling that he must break the silence. He longed to shout out aloud. Shh, whispered Strider. What's that? gasped Pippin at the same time. Over the lip of the little dell. In the side away from the hill, they felt, rather than saw, a shadow rise. One shadow, or more than one. They strained their eyes, and the shadows seemed to grow. Soon there could be no doubt. Three or four tall, black figures were standing there on the slope, looking down at them. So black were they that they seemed like black holes in the deep shade behind them. Frodo thought that he heard a faint hiss as of a venomous breath, and felt then a thin, piercing chill. Then the shapes slowly advanced. Terror overcame Pippin and Merry, and they threw themselves flat on the ground. Sam shrank to Frodo's side. Frodo was hardly less terrified than his companions. He was quaking as if he were bitter cold, but his terror was swallowed up in a sudden temptation to put on the ring. The desire to do this laid hold of him, and he could think of nothing else. He did not forget the barrow nor the message of Gandalf, but something seemed to be compelling him to disregard all warnings, and he longed to yield. Not with the hope of escape or of doing anything either good or bad, he simply felt that he must take out the ring and put it upon his finger. He could not speak. He felt Sam looking at him as if he knew that his master was in some great trouble, but he could not turn toward him. He shut his eyes and struggled for a while, but resistance became unbearable, and at last he slowly drew out the chain and slipped the ring on the forefinger of his left hand. Immediately, though everything else remained as before, dim and dark, the shapes became terribly clear. He was able to see underneath their black wrappings. There were five tall figures, two standing at the lip of the dell, three advancing in their white faces, burned keen and merciless eyes. Under their mantles were long gray robes, upon their gray hairs were helms of silver, in their haggard hands were swords of steel. Their eyes fell upon him and pierced him, and as they rushed toward him, desperate, he drew his own sword, and it seemed to him that it flickered red as if it were a firebrand. Two of the figures halted. The third was taller than the others. His hair was long and gleaming, and on his helm he wore a crown. In one hand he held a long sword, and in the other a knife. Both the knife and the hand that held it glowed with a pale light. He sprang forward and bore down on Frodo. At that moment Frodo threw himself to the ground, and he heard himself crying aloud, Oh, Elbereth! Gilthoniel! At the same time he struck at the enemy at his feet. A shrill cry rang out in the night, and he felt a pain like a dart of poisoned ice pierce his left shoulder. Even as he swooned, he caught 
as though through a swirling mist, a glimpse of Strider leaping out of the darkness with a flaming brand of wood in either hand. With a last effort, Frodo, dropping his sword, slipped the ring from his finger and closed his hand tight upon it. Exciting. <laughs> Everyone, thank you so much for joining me this evening in Middle-earth. Pretty Spade says, and there it is, folks. The reason I finally chose to read these books on my own as a wee nine-year-old. Indeed, Proteus Spade. Good Courage says, funny you say that, Gems. Uh, yeah, Gems, <laughs> Gems has said, ah, yes, great to hear the end of a stream. Uh, and yeah, Good Courage, hello, welcome. Good Courage says, I still stand pretty firmly on my theory that the Wizarding World exists within Tolkien's universe. Hello, Good Courage, good to have you here. Um, and yeah, I think, I mean, certainly, right, uh, it is not necessarily the the Ur story, right? Uh, it's not the first and only of its kind, but it is one of the first to, I guess, to so thoroughly and intentionally construct a mythology. Um, I am aware that it is not the first mythology, obviously not the first mythology, but um, consider how often in the past uh, mythologies were simply uh, absorbed or uh, sort of compiled over time. They, they accumulated um, like a snowball, right? Someone would tell a story of a particular scary cave and someone else would tell that same story, but this time it was their friend who did it. Um, and then... Someone else would tell the story, and this time that same friend was like a big, beefy guy, and then that, that next story told it was, well, the, this cave was so scary because there was a huge lion in it. And before long, you've got the story of a, a three-story-tall lion fighting a uh, superhuman son of gods, um, and, uh, you know, at, at some point, uh, the, the human manages to win and cuts the pelt from the lion, right? All of these things were not, I think, in most cases, uh, intentionally contrived. Now... Uh, I, being an enthusiast of these things and not a scholar, uh, I would say that uh, it's certainly possible that some of these things were contrived, right? Stories told to one another that uh, uh, either true things that became myth or stories told to one another as myth that become true. Uh, all these things uh, uh, sort of combined to make up these mythologies. But when we come to The Lord of the Rings... Right, we find one of these uh, uh, one of these prototypes for a lot of the style of uh, fiction that gets written these days. Right, it is. I mean, the, the, you can find subreddits with the title "world building." Right, it is almost a it's almost an expectation at this point uh, that you would do what, uh, or or perhaps I should say that you might attempt a <laughs> uh, a pale shadow of what Tolkien does here, which is to create his own cosmology, right? The, the sort of the, the, the basis of the universe, the creation of all things, um, 
uh, that some a lot of those sort of get tied up in cosmology. Um, uh, sort of what are what is the presence of the gods? What impact do they have on the world? How do what are the, what are the foundations of the ways that things work? Why does one thing happen after another? Um, all these things uh, he kind of invented for this, right? And it was with the intent um, I have read a number of times to create a mythology for England itself, to create uh, sort of from whole cloth a, a uniquely sort of English mythology, one which involved, uh, you know, uh, <laughs> the, the sort of uh, things that are particular to them. And yes, certainly drawing on many inspirations of old. I believe that uh, the concept of elves are like an old... Uh, like proto-German thing, if I remember correctly. I could be wrong about that. Please do not quote me on it. But um, to, to take some of these elements and create a, a holistic, completed, roughly, um, mythology of an England that could have been, rather than what was, which was essentially uh, a, a group of native people uh, conquered uh, maybe a few times, subjugated a few times, uh, um, a... Uh, an amalgam, right? Uh, an amalgamation of all of these various, uh, uh, you know, myths clashing from different cultures as places are conquered or or conquer other places, uh, uh, visitors move between them, right? All that would be the organic way in which mythology develops. But this, the, the way in which he approaches this world is very much one of, I shall create an entire timeline, a cosmology, uh, histories of kingdoms and people within those kingdoms and, and how they... How they lived. That has set the pace, I think, for much of the much of the literature, especially the fantasy literature, um, that has developed. And I was reading uh, some interviews with uh, certain fantasy authors and about how you know fantasy is kind of considered like uh, I've heard the word ghettoized uh, genre, right? There's this there's this sense that like, well, okay, so. You, you could write, like, the great American novel, or, I mean, I guess if you're not trying to take the literary thing too seriously, then I guess you could do fantasy, etc. Right, that gets, that gets said. But there were some great takes by, I want to say Pratchett, and I also want to say Ursula de Guin, but I, I, A, I don't know how to pronounce the name, uh, Ursula de Guin's last name, I'm just going to say Guin, um, uh, and I also can't be sure that it was them positively, but... Um, they mentioned that that uh, something that I think holds true, which is that fantasy is the er literature, right? This might not be the er story, uh, and I've, I've used that phrase a couple of times. Got to say what it means. Um, essentially, the first, the the first great, uh, not necessarily the first first, not necessarily the great great, but the first great. Um, so, uh, you know, the the literature as it is, you know, what what the artistic medium of literature is designed to accomplish, um, the effects that it has, many of the customs and traditions of the, uh, of the medium, many of those, if not all of them, were born out of fantasy. These stories that people tell to one another, um, you know, much like any other literature, to make them feel things, to to, you know, th this is my own take on it. This is, I think, th if there is anything that is special about humans, um, that is unique, uh, that I, you could even call holy about humans, it is our ability to, to communicate and to tell stories to one another. To relay ideas and uh, to relay experience such that you can have an experience that I have had. It will be a, 
sort of a decaf version of that experience. But there is there is no other there is no other being to our existing knowledge that is able to relay experience. We can, you know, other creatures can sort of warn, um, other creatures can uh, try to use combined experience to to try and, uh, you know, give warnings about things, um, uh, give like heads up about food, that sort of stuff. But this, I think, is the special thing about us is that we are able to pass on experience from my brain into your brain. Again, it's going to be uh, a, a sort of a decaf version of that experience. You won't be able to experience it as I have done so, but uh, consider the things that you understand about other people, about how they process grief and loss, about how they react to success, about how uh, you know, the, 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 the infinite number of stories about human experience. Um, uh, you know, we can talk about some of the things that we've read, uh, talking about uh, The Great Gatsby. That was uh, perhaps someone talking from personal experience perhaps not but it is relaying the experience of someone uh trapped in a grief of a life sort of lost great gatsby uh you know pining away for this life that that sort of could be trying to bring back might have been at one point um but it, it relays that experience um you know christmas carol it tells it fantastically it's not uh you know the 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 Great Gatsby, of course, tells that story in a very uh, mundane setting and uh, uh, and style. But Christmas Carol, right, talking about greed, talking about it, its effects on one's own heart and about uh, its effects on other people, um, written from someone with a, a a a wealth, a depth of experience on the effects that the avarice of others, the greed of others, will have on those folks in their community. Um, all of this. You know, essentially the ability to relay experience from one's mind who has experienced it or experienced it in some way into the mind of another who has not experienced it or not experienced it in the same way. Pretty Spade, I want to thank you very much for posting that link over on Discord because I believe it is what I am, uh, what I'm referring to. I believe it's Terry Pratchett getting a little sassy about... Uh, <laughs> Uh, about uh, the genre of fantasy being called kind of a, a ghettoized genre. Yeah. Yeah. My good folks, uh, like I said, um, this, perhaps not the first, perhaps not the biggest of all time, although I would agree, I, I would argue that it might still be the biggest of all time. Um, but the, the first and greatest... Uh, as far as, you know, kind of the lasting impacts that it has today. Um, Lord of the Rings, with its invented uh, worlds, conveying things that aren't invented, conveying things that are universal. We talked about that so much with The Hobbit, right? How often do we talk in The Hobbit about how, yeah, it's a story about, you know, uh, hobbits and trolls and dwarves and such, but it's also the story of leaving home. It's the story of committing to the unknown because you've got an itch to do so. It's the story of lying to protect your own ego, right? With 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 uh, uh, um, uh, Bilbo and the Ring. Uh, it's the story of greed once again. Yeah, remember how long the the, the dragon sticks around? My stutter is especially bad today. Um, 
Remember how long the dragon actually sticks around in The Hobbit? Or should I say how long it doesn't stick around? What comes after that? We talked a ton about uh, stories about greed. Um, and uh, again, using these fantastical figures, these fantastical puppets to talk about very real things. And uh, if you think about it, puppets, uh, shadows upon the wall, uh, accompanied by stories. This is what humans have been doing for ever. If we consider our own timeline, this is what we've been doing forever. And I'm very happy to be able to continue this tradition with all of you. Everyone, thank you so much for joining me tonight. Uh, tonight's a bit of a short one because um, our chapter was, let's see, uh, this was a 10,000 word chapter. Usually I like to do about 12,000 words, but the next one is also super long. And so either it was like, yeah, go a little short or very, very long. Next week, chapter 12, A Flight to the Road. And then we are on into what is technically book two out of six. You know, some of you will consider it book, uh, just sort of like the first half of book one out of three. Uh, but technically, The Lord of the Rings is a uh, a series of six books. Um, each one divided um, sort of uh, uh, typically into three I think I've I think I've gotten myself a little bit lost here. Like I said, my stutter is especially bad tonight. I'm not sure what entirely is going on. I feel well and everything, but uh, uh, yeah. So essentially, uh, this book, one could argue, it is either three books or six books. Um, we are in the last chapter next week of the first out of six books. Um, book two. Does it give us the title of book two? I don't remember if it'll give it to us in here. No, it doesn't. Let me see if if I can find the name of all six books. Oh, wait a second. Hold on, where did I put my, my... Hold on, let me grab my copy of the book here because it's got it in this. Just a moment. Oh, yeah, and also I can show you some, some stuff that happened. Oh, hi, Kobe. Hi, baby. How you doing? I didn't know you were in here. How, you, how are you, Bubby? Well, you're not Bubby. You're baby. Blue Boy has gotten shortened to Bubby, and then Baby continues to be Baby. So our cats often go by Baby or Bubby. All right. Ooh, that's right. I didn't think about that. Next week is Thanksgiving. Um, it's a Thursday. I'm probably going to have family in town, so I don't think it's going to be next week. Now that I think about it. Rats. Okay, I didn't think about that. I'm sorry. Thank you very much for the reminder, S. Carlovit. But yes, I think I'm going to say next week I am not going to be reading this. So we will be back the week after Thanksgiving. Um... Uh, you know, I've, I've definitely considered it in the past, but, uh, right now it's, I'll just say that right now, uh, I need some time with some, some family. There's, there's like, there's stuff going on in my family and I, I want to, I want to get some time with them. So, um, yeah, going to have them up and I think I'm going to dedicate my time to that. Indeed. Okay. Hold on. Here we go. Book. Hmm. No, it doesn't name it in here. I could have sworn. Page 212. Page 212. Let's see if it gives a name on the page itself, although I don't think that it will. Many meetings. Nope, just book two. Okay, that's okay. Uh, yeah, so uh, I believe that there are names for them. I don't remember. Uh, what? Oh, thanks, good courage. You get out of here. <laughs> you get gone. Um, 
but uh, yeah, so essentially we have reached the end of book one as of our next stream. Um, and uh, we are on into book two, which is the second half of The Fellowship of the Ring. Um, let me read you some a couple of chapter titles there. Uh, chapter one, Many Meetings. Chapter two, The Council of Elrond. That's right. That's right, folks. You better watch out. <laughs> We're going into it. Um, everyone, thank you so much for joining me here today. Uh, I do love you all dearly. Uh, let's see who there is to raid on over to tonight. Um, let me see. I am seeing... Ooh, Emmy the Odds online. Emmy's online playing, uh, looks like Mass Effect. So, folks, thank you very much for joining me. I love you all. I will see you... Um, next week early next week um for some of our streams but uh, i will not be doing our thursday stream next week sorry folks uh, i do hope you all enjoy your holidays um uh and if you are cooking but you're like man the turkey is so much work i will i will pitch to you all the idea of turkey meatballs i don't know if uh if that sort of fits your whole jam here but i made them last year and i am going to be making them again this year because it does the trick and it's not Oh boy, it's not nearly as fussy as a full turkey. Something to consider. I'll pop the. I'll, I will pop the um, uh, that over in Discord if y'all wish. Folks, thank you for having me tonight. I love y'all. I'll see you tomorrow. Tomorrow? No, I won't. Bye bye. <laughs>